The next patient presented by Dr. Harwin reflects a clinical scenario that's much more common in colon cancer, namely the patient with hepatic-only metastatic disease. This is a long-term patient of mine who presented with locally advanced breast cancer with palpable subcavicular lymphadenopathy in October 2001. She was ERPR positive and HER2 new positive. She was not eligible for the intergroup Herceptin trial because her disease was too advanced. She was treated with five cycles of the epirubicin 5-FU cytoxin regimen with improvement. And then she underwent a mastectomy in 2002 and had one positive node and only 0.3 centimeters of remaining carcinoma. She was her to new positive by fish. She then had post-surgery further adjuvant chemotherapy with taxotere for four cycles, and she completed everything about six years ago now. She then did well for a while and was placed on adjuvant tamoxifen since she was premenopausal prior to chemotherapy and she also received post-mastectomy radiation. In September 2003, she had rising markers and abnormal liver blood tests, and she developed biopsy-proven liver metastases. She was placed on a clinical trial with Gemzar Taxotir, which she had previously received, and Herceptin now for the first time, and received 10 cycles with a near-complete response. She just had residual, very tiny densities in the liver, so it was difficult to say if she was in a true CR or not. And after that point, she was just kept on maintenance or septin. She was disease-free until August 2005, nearly three years ago, when she developed progressive liver metastases. And she was treated now with Taxol Carboplatinum Herceptin on a weekly-type schedule. And she then developed again a near-CR in February 2006. She was just put back on maintenance or septin. About two years ago, she progressed with a single liver lesion, and she was interested in local therapy options such as surgery, radiofrequency ablation, and her radiation therapist and her elected to treat her with stereotactic radiosurgery, and she received 27 centigrade three fractions. And were you involved in that decision? I was. I mean, I didn't have any data to say it was the wrong thing to do. It was hard for me to be particularly enthusiastic about it because I certainly didn't think that was going to cure her. Was surgery considered to remove it? It was. She saw her surgeon, but they elected not to do it. Mark, what about this issue? Obviously, all the time in colorectal cancer, we think about taking out liver mets, and we rarely think about it in breast cancer. Are there situations, I mean, here she seems like she has a her too sensitive tumor, so to speak, where maybe that's a consideration? There are situations. We don't see it all too often in breast cancer because oftentimes the systemic disease is multi-organ, and so you don't have the opportunity to consider regional therapeutic options. But in someone with an isolated metastasis with a long natural history, I have recommended radiofrequency ablation or resection or cryosurgery or all the above, and I have done it on occasion, but it's just pretty unusual. It's pretty rare, and it's just for selected patients. I can't say that it works every single time, but I have had probably some mileage out of these kind of approaches in highly selected patients occasionally. So what happened there, Bill? She then progressed later and about four months later, so it wasn't a really long time. And then we enrolled her on another clinical trial with lapatinib, and then the randomization was alone or with Herceptin, and she was randomized to the lapatinib plus Herceptin arm. She did have some evidence of a response, but then about a year ago, she then progressed again in the liver with a large lesion. At that point, lapatinib was commercially available, and I elected to treat her with lapatinib and Zolota, 
which she continued on for some time and had evidence again of objective response, but then later progressed. And this past December, her radiation therapist elected again, not encouraged by me, with further stereotactic radiation to the liver. This January, she progressed in the liver and also developed some retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. And on February 1st, she began therapy with a Braxane at her septum. This is the fourth time she received a Taxane. And her CA2729 dropped from 97 to 60 to 40 to normal. It's been normal a couple of times. And recent CT PET scans showed improvement by both PET and CT in the liver and in the retroperitoneum. Unfortunately, the patient has gotten worse. She'd been endoscoped a while earlier and had a problem with an inflammatory area in the duodenum, and it was a little bit narrowed. So we sent her back to the gastroenterologist because the tumor seems to be getting better, but she's getting worse. A lot of epigastric pain, difficulty eating, definite weight loss. This is a woman who's worked and basically has functioned normally and tolerated all treatment during the entire course of her metastatic disease. What kind of work does she do? She works as a teacher's aide in the public school system. So she's had HER2 positive metastatic disease to the liver now since 2003, so five years. Yeah, it's impressive. And most of that time she's been working, feeling okay? Yes. Up until this year, it's the first time she just told us she took a leave of absence, but she's working, functioning the entire time. Now, right now, is it the GI stuff that's the main problem? The entire problem. She has pain and she really can't eat. So she underwent endoscopy and had an ulcerated strictured area in the duodenal that was in the sweep of the duodenal that's really near the liver, and her gastroenterologist really felt this was a radiation-induced injury. Wow. And biopsies showed no evidence of malignancy, just inflammatory changes. We sent her back to her surgeon, and the plan is tomorrow. She's undergoing a gastrojejunostomy. I asked her surgeon if he sees something in the liver to biopsy it and exploratory laparotomy. Wow. Mark, what did you see when you saw her today? Well, you know, if it hadn't been for this complication in the GI tract, she's had a remarkable response to the salvage weekly Abraxane-Herceptin combination. So I was very impressed that despite her heavy pretreatment with both taxanes and HER2-targeted agents, two different HER2-targeted agents, here she is having an apparent response again this laid out. It is truly remarkable that you can have five years of disease, not always control, but more or less some control with her two-targeted therapy long-term. Yeah, it's really interesting. If I can count all these up, it sounds like she's had a number of responses to trastuzumab with different chemotherapy regimens. And it seems like both the times that she got lapatinib, she had some evidence of response. Is that right, Bill? That's correct. The reason I felt comfortable trying Abraxane is because she never progressed on Ataxane. She always responded. Mark, what about the issue of the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab? There's going to be some data presented at ASCO on that. What do we know about that combination? That's right. I participated in the phase one dose escalation study of that combination along with Storniolo and colleagues. And we did encounter a dose-limiting toxicity with that regimen. So the dose is important. You can't just use full-dose lapatinib with that particular combination. But with the recommended phase two dose, it's well-tolerated. And as you mentioned, Joyce O'Shaughnessy will be presenting data at this ASCO in June of 2008. It's a randomized trial comparing patients who progress on trastuzumab-based combinations. They'll get lapatinib with or without continuing trastuzumab in the salvage setting. It's going to be an oral presentation, so I think the data will be quite interesting. Do you think that from a safety point of view, this is a regimen that can be considered outside a protocol setting? 
Probably from a safety point of view, yes, because actually Storniolo at the last ASCO reported safety data on this combination, cardiac safety data, I should mention specifically, and there were no apparent cardiac safety signals with this particular regimen. So I think after ASCO, we may see some increased interest with this combination, even off-study. In terms of on-study, certainly this combination is being used now in the adjuvant lapatinib trials, as well as some neoadjuvant studies, I believe. Where do you see things heading in terms of the long-term management of HER2-positive metastatic disease? Now, you know, in the past we had all of this controversy about continuing trastuzumab, but now it's gotten much more complicated with lapatinib on board. Any sort of algorithm or approach mark that you have in terms of when to bring in lapatinib, when to continue trastuzumab, when to continue lapatinib for that matter? Well, we don't have comparative data from randomized trials to guide us in this regard, so you just have to kind of weigh the relative merits and adverse events from each approach in your own mind when you're confronted with a patient that has to make difficult decisions. Of course, with regard to continuation of trastuzumab, we have the von Minkowitz data with capecitabine. That was a positive phase three trial suggesting that continuation of trastuzumab after the first line may actually be associated with some clinical benefit. We certainly have the registration trial of capecitabine in combination with lapatinib, which clearly shows clinical utility of that approach. So I think to make matters even worse in the future, we're going to see even more combinations of HER2 targeted agents. At this coming ASCO, you're going to see updated phase one data on a trastuzumab conjugate with a metanzin derivative called DM1. And that's going to show a lot of very robust responses, even in the phase one dose escalation cohort. You're also going to see updated data on a second generation anti-HER2 antibody called pertuzumab. And that also is associated with responses in the salvage setting after trastuzumab treatment failure in metastatic disease. So I think this is going to be reminiscent of the history of targeted therapies to the estrogen receptor. We're going to see probably multiple classes of HER2-targeted therapeutic agents. They're going to be used in sequence or in combination, whatever the data supports long-term. And hopefully patients like this will enjoy longer periods of disease control as a result. And in the adjuvant setting, hopefully these types of combination approaches will be superior. Now, I think you said that there was some dose-limiting toxicity when lopatinib and trastuzumab were combined. Yeah, it was fatigue, actually. Fatigue. It was fatigue. Yeah, it was not a laboratory problem or a specific organ malfunction. It was purely fatigue was the dose-limiting toxicity. And what would the etiology of that be? We never really could understand that. It was certainly not cardiac based on ejection fraction measurements. It was not cytopenias. It's anybody's guess, but it happened, I believe, in more than one patient at the top dose level, and we had to back off. And going down to lower dose levels, we did not encounter that as a complication. Now, when this lady was on the combination bill, did she have fatigue? No, she really had very few side effects. She tolerated very well. Anything else about this patient you want to comment on? She's tough. She didn't have a single complaint about any of her. When Mark asked, she really said she really had no side effects that she could complain about other than obvious hair loss of all her treatments. She's a trooper. Yeah, she's I'm tough. About it. When you say she's a trooper, what was it that she said, or how did she appear, or why did she come across that way to you, Mark? She looked healthy and was bright, cheerful. The fact that she had been working full-time up until very recently, I was very impressed by that. You know, You don't always see that sort of retention and good to excellent performance status long-term in a HER2-positive patient. That's gratifying, and I hope she'll be able to get more mileage out of the current regimen. And if she relapses in the future, there are certainly other 
possibilities open to her. She's never had Venerelbean, for example, and she's never had some of these newer novel HER2-targeted agents such as DM1 or pertuzumab. So if she qualifies for any of those studies in the future, that might also be the way to go. What other chemo agent do you think is rational, reasonable to use outside a protocol setting with lapatinib? I don't think in the absence of safety data that you can easily just start treating patients with multiple lines of lapatinib chemo until we get some solid phase two safety data sets with lapatinib in combination with other agents. I think that that's going to be a challenge. What about lapatinib alone? Lapatinib alone is certainly on the table. I mean, she's already had that, though. I believe, historically. So I don't know that I would go back to that now in this particular case. But lapatinib alone, there's a lot of safety data on that regimen. There's certainly efficacy data from two large registrational phase two trials that have both been presented and I believe now published. There is single agent data, but she's already had lapatinib combinations with both chemo and with Herceptin. So I wouldn't resort to that particular salvage strategy currently. This is very unusual sending her for this type of operation. I've really never encountered something like that. It's a big operation for a patient with advanced cancer. Was there any consideration or possibility of doing dilatation of some type? She had a pretty experienced gastroenterologist. He was really worried if he tried to dilate that, that he would so easily perforate. It was very, very friable. His concern is that she might still have pain afterwards. She may be able to eat, but that may not solve her pain problem. Where do you think the pain's coming from? I think it's from this ulcerated, strictured area. It's epigastric. Her pain's very epigastric. What's it been like for you, Bill, to take care of her? I know her very well. I really like her. I always give her a hug when I see her. I saw her before Mark, but I mean, I've known her a long time. She's really tough. She participates in the American Cancer Society events. She's really a remarkable woman. I really like her. I've become very close to her over the years. Mark, what about the issue of getting close to patients who have metastatic disease? You know, it's unavoidable. It happens to all of us. I certainly keep my guard up. I mean, it's tough, but you become very attached to patients, especially patients who are coming back frequently, like on weekly schedules, and you get to know them and their family, and they bring in things for the office staff at holiday time, et cetera, et cetera. You hear about events in their life, weddings and graduations and birthdays, and oftentimes patients bring their whole family in tow or family and friends or the whole bit, and it's a rough situation in the end when you're reaching the end of available therapies and the patient feels it and they know it and you know that the time you have together is limited. I could have asked this for any of the patients. Let me ask it about this patient. Bill, have you ever talked to her about advanced directives or living will, stuff like that? I have not. When do you usually talk to patients about that? When it gets to the point where I'm sending them to hospice. I've never felt a great need to have any terrific advanced directive because in my mind, the way I look at things, if I know what the patient wants and they make it clear to me, I don't really feel like I need it on a piece of paper, someone who's a long-term patient, that I understand them and I know their family and there isn't anything controversial. I feel like if I know what they want, I don't ask them, oh, please go out, get an attorney and bring me a living will. It doesn't really affect what I do. When they go to hospice, that then becomes part of the process automatically. One or two of Bill's patients commented voluntarily this afternoon that they know that they're incurable. So, I mean, Bill is very upfront about that, obviously, from the get-go. And as long as you're open and honest about that, patients will often do the kind of paperwork that they need to do at home, knowing that they have ultimately a terminal illness and you don't have to drive that forcibly in a well-educated and informed patient. But certainly by the time you're looking at hospice situations, that's the time to break that kind of news.